Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. And uh, before we look to God's Word, let's look to Him first in prayer. So would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we now open Your Word, we pray that You would open our hearts and we might see magnificent things anew, that we might see Jesus and Him alone, that You would forgive the sins of the preacher, for they are many, that You would draw us into a deeper understanding of what You're coming into this world meant and continues to mean. We pray it all, Jesus, in your name. Amen. It was quite literally the week that changed the world. Three of the four gospel accounts devote almost a third of their content to this week. And the fourth gospel devotes its entire last half. And every year as a church, we take time, rightfully so, to consider the significance and the importance of the week that we call Holy Week. Not only in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, but for all of us as well. Because what happened this week, 2,000 years ago, has eternal ramifications. And today we begin with Palm Sunday. And I was thinking back this week uh, to when I was a child, and Palm Sunday was always one of my favorites. Not because I understood the meaning of Hosanna, or because I love to sing all glory, laud, and honor, but because at church they gave you a free sword uh, to which to jab my younger brother with. And parents, unless you uh, get mad at me, trust me, your children had already thought of that the moment they were handed out. And perhaps for many of us too, hearing a story that we've heard so often before, countless times perhaps, we may gloss over the meaning of Palm Sunday altogether. Today is more than just a beautiful day or the first day of spring. It's my prayer this morning that the Spirit of God would move in all of our hearts and perhaps we might see fresh insight into this magnificent story. So let's now read Matthew 21 and I'm beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble." And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. 
Imagine with me, if you will, Jerusalem filled with pilgrims. Normally there may be about 50,000 people in the city, but at this time with the Passover, that number could be doubled, perhaps even tripled. And their minds, as they celebrate and literally make their way up the Judean countryside and hillside, their minds are filled with history as they think back to the time of captivity during the time of Exodus, recalling all that the Lord did in wonder and power in nine plagues, and then how he had finally sent the angel of death to every home in Egypt, but passed over the homes that were covered on the doorposts by the blood of the Lamb. How God delivered Israel with a mighty hand from the oppression of Pharaoh. But if their minds were filled with history, their hearts were filled with longings and great expectations. You see, they hoped the Messiah might appear. And when he would appear, he might appear triumphantly. And he would rescue them from the government in Rome. That he might come in power and majesty and overthrow the leaders, ridding them of the cruel oppression of their own day. They longed for a Messiah that would bring liberty as a nation. And it was at this particular moment in time that Jesus decided to make his entry into Jerusalem. Before this, Jesus had told his disciples after they had witnessed a miracle, even after they had witnessed the glory and the joy of the transfiguration, to tell nobody who he really was, to keep his identity as the Messiah a secret. And we're only left to wonder and guess why. Probably because of the events that will transpire this week. But nonetheless, we see throughout all of the gospel accounts that Jesus lived his life and he exercised his ministry with a divine chronology. He did not move about or do things haphazardly. Jesus didn't wing it. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly when to do it. And why? And he also understood the consequences that would follow. So in our text this morning, it's no mistake what happens or the details recorded here in Matthew. So what I want to do briefly in our time together is to ask, what does this all mean? In three questions. What did it mean for the disciples? What did it mean for Jesus? And what did it mean for the crowds? Now, not all points are equal in length. So don't get nervous or restless if you look down at your watch and it takes me a little bit more time in the first uh, as we deal with this text in Matthew 21. The first issue, what does it mean for the disciples? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And one of the things that impressed me this week that I really hadn't seen before was that being a, G- being a disciple of Jesus means going where you're sent And doing what you're told. It's simple and beautiful. It's not the full picture of what a disciple is. But it's certainly not less than this. Look at verse 2. He gave specific instructions to two out of the twelve. To go into the village ahead of you and get a donkey. And then in verse 6. Very simply. The disciples went. Now this had been their experience from the very beginning. These twelve were, quite frankly, minding their own business. They were doing something, many of whom were fishermen. 
doing something that their fathers had done before them and probably fully anticipated they would always do. Once a fisherman, always a fisherman. And then this carpenter from Galilee comes by the shore and says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left all they knew and followed him. Now, discipleship is the task of every believer, regardless of where you live or what you do. Yet God is still in the habit of calling people into unique opportunities and unique places for ministry. Maybe you're here this morning wrestling with whether or not you should go on a mission trip or if you should volunteer with a particular ministry or if even you should go over and visit and reach out to that neighbor you've been putting off. But I pray that we all would be struck by the simplicity of the response these two disciples made. The disciple goes where he is sent, even when the mission seems strange. You can imagine them looking around at one another and saying, Lord, we've been with you for three years now, and we've done a lot for you, and we've done a lot with you. But now you want us to get into the rent-a-donkey business? What's that company that, uh, I think it's Enterprise maybe, that has the car commercial, will pick you up? Whatever it is. Nonetheless, Jesus says, yes, go and get the donkey. And in Mark's account, Mark records that some people along their way did say, hey, where do you think you're going with the donkey? Following Jesus as his disciples sometimes means opposition. Who do you think you are? What right do you have to be here? Who gave you the authority to say these things? Sometimes we find ourselves doing strange things in the cause of Christ and sometimes even facing pushback. And we might act or feel surprised when we do as if Jesus hadn't promised that this would happen. As if his great secret that the disciples never saw coming was opposition. And if we're going to make any headway into following Jesus of Nazareth, we need to ask ourselves this question. Am I prepared to lose myself in the call of Jesus Christ? Am I prepared to die to self? To let go of my comfort? To let go of my security? To let go maybe even of my reputation? Am I willing to live in obscurity so that I might know the sweetness of his voice one day that says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Also note in this mission to grab the donkey that nothing, nothing is trivial when we follow Jesus. As you go back to school tomorrow or as you stay at home with the kiddos, Whether discipleship for you means pushing a broom or even sitting in the boardroom, regardless of how easy or hard or mundane or frustrated or seemingly insignificant you feel your job and life is, remember this, that everything we do in discipleship is a means to an end. And that end is to introduce others to the good news of Jesus Christ. There is no task as well that is beneath any of us in discipleship. There's nothing that we can say, I'm too important for this, or that's a job for the nobodies. 
No, in Christ we are all nobodies who are loved by the King. And so He calls us. And if you've set out on the journey of the Christian life, if you've cast yourself upon His goodness and mercy, then the very reason you exist and the reason I exist is to make disciples of all the nations. This is not a task for pastors or missionaries. It's the task of the whole church, no matter what our daily routine is. We say to the world, did you know, did you know that there is a Savior, Christ the Lord? That is our calling. Now we don't know who of the twelve, which two got the assignment, but I like to think it might have been Peter uh, who could have used some humbling. Uh, He and others, we can imagine, might have met old friends or fishing buddies along the street of this amazing celebration taking place. And can you imagine the meeting? Oh, hey, Peter, how's it going? What you up to? Oh, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus now. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it is. It's very nice. In fact, it involves a lot of different things. Oh, well, what kinds of things does it involve? Well, right now I'm going to get a donkey. Oh, you're getting a donkey. Sounds really important. Sounds really big. You're a big shot now. I'll talk to you later. Now the disciple goes where he's sent. But also the disciple does what he's told. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if we're not a disciple of Jesus, if we don't do as he commands, if we don't do as Jesus says, look again at verse 6. They went and did as Jesus had directed them. John 14:15 Jesus says, "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments." There's no way around it. Jesus is not being cute with words here. He's saying, "If you love me, you'll do what I say." Now, when I say that a disciple does what he's told, I'm not talking about listening to any sort of man-made-up religion or listening to one person or one pastor or one elder. I'm simply talking about do, listening to the word of God and doing what it says. My uncle um, was born in Great Britain and he went into the army as a young man and eventually became a major and a tank commander. And I learned from him growing up that in Great Britain, I think this might still be true and I know it's uh, true still in Canada as I looked it up, uh, but if you need to uh, mail a letter to a member of parliament or anything that has to do with government business, instead of putting postage on this letter, you can just write the initials OHMS, which stands for On His Majesty's Service. So if you want to write a letter, if it's dealing with the business of the king, you just write OHMS and it'll get there. No postage required. The reality is, if we are in Christ as disciples, all of us have stamped upon us O-H-M-S. We are on His Majesty's service. Christianity is not a democracy. We serve at the pleasure and in obedience to the King. What the King commands, His subject follows. And if the word obedience this morning makes you a little uncomfortable... Or if in your Christian vocabulary the word obedience makes you think of harsh judgmentalism, 
then I suggest you haven't really met the real Jesus in the Gospels who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For there's no greater pilgrimage, there's no greater fulfillment in life than to go where Jesus sends you and to do what Jesus tells you. Jesus Christ is Lord over all. He's Lord of my time. He's Lord of my finances. He's Lord of my thoughts. And He's Lord of my future. No matter where He says to go, I will. No matter what He says to do, I must. Do you and I live this way? This is the call and this is the path of discipleship. And sometimes we're, mis- we're tempted to misunderstand the nature of true grace into thinking that somehow it means we're free to live however we want. That it doesn't matter what we do or where we go or what we say because God has forgiven us. But that's not grace at all. Grace frees us to obey To live truly the good life. The life that we were designed to live. We're now rescued so that we can enjoy the wonder and the beauty of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's nothing better in the world than this. I promise you. In Paris, France, 1924, a man by the name of Eric Little won the 400 meter race in the Summer Olympics. He would not, however, run the 100 meter race because the 100 meter event was being held on a Sunday. And Eric Little, as a Christian, had his uh, conviction that he would not run on the Sabbath. The Prince of Wales himself, the very future King of England, tried to pressure him to compete in that 100 meters. But he refused. Respectfully, of course, but on conviction, essentially saying, at great personal loss, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ raises up kings and he sets them down. And I must do what the king says. You see, friendship and discipleship with Jesus Christ meant everything to Eric Little. In 1925, he ended up journeying back to where he was born, or near where he was born, in China. And he became a missionary and lived there for about 20 more years until he died in a concentration camp of a brain tumor. And when he died, I think his death was in February, for a long time afterwards, every day on the anniversary of his death, all the schools in Scotland would be closed uh, in memory of Eric Little. That's discipleship. A relationship with Jesus Christ that bows the knee to his good wishes. That wants to please him. He used to say as he ran, I could feel God's pleasure. A disciple goes where he is sent. And a disciple does what he is told. Well, secondly, what did Palm Sunday mean for Jesus? Simply, it means Jesus is the king. Notice Jesus himself recognizes that he is God. He instructs his disciples as they go that if anyone questions them, they're simply to reply, the Lord has need of it. Notice in the text it doesn't say your Lord or a Lord or a good teacher 
or a rabbi or a very moral person or somebody who's just kind of, uh, I could really rent a donkey today. Could you just please be gracious and kind? No, the Lord, if the king of kings needs or wants a donkey, he gets one, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, he says at the end of Matthew. And as the Lord, he could have come any way he wanted, not only into Jerusalem, but into the whole world, right? He could have really put on a show with miracles happening all around him on a whole a heavenly host of myriads of angels in chariot. But instead he says, go and get a donkey, would you? A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity um, as I was at a coffee shop in Jackson um, to meet the former president of the United States, Bill Clinton. And as he drove up, uh, he was not riding on a donkey. Uh, he, there was a, a motorcade, as much as we would expect presidents and important people to ride in. Uh, there was a cop car, another cop car, two black Suburbans, uh, and a Cadillac Gold Escalade. Guess which one Bill Clinton was riding in? The Gold Escalade. And he was, it would have been so strange and surreal, right? To see a former president or to go to Washington DC and see President Obama writing to Congress for his State of the Union on a donkey. It, it wouldn't fit. Jesus doesn't come on a white stallion or in a chariot, which would have symbolized great power and victory. No, his kingship is not like other kings. Because you see, Jesus is gentle. And he is lowly at heart. That's the great paradox of who he is. He is great. And yet he is humble. Jesus is exalted. And yet he is lowly. He is the king of glory. And he is riding on a donkey to his death. So that we might live forever. Now, verses 4 and 5 in our text sort of serve as a parenthesis. Matthew kind of takes a, a time out and kind of reports as a commentary on what's going on. And he does so to say, why? The, the question we might have is, why Jesus on a donkey? What's the significance of that? Well, first, the, the d- direct significance was that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew is literally quoting the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, when he writes that, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Decades and centuries before Jesus was ever born, Zechariah prophesied this, and here comes the king. Here comes the Messiah. This arrival was not the fulfillment of anyone's dreams or hopes or wishes, but it was the fulfillment of God's designs. Now Mark, in his account, records the same event, but he adds one detail about the donkey. That it was a donkey upon which no one had ever ridden before. And I looked that up and one commentator pointed out the significance of this, recalling back to the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament. How the heifer had to be pure. It had to be unused. Even how in the Old Testament when God would give instructions in moving the Ark of the Covenant, it was to be moved on a cart that was brand new. Even pulled by oxen that were brand new, that had never been used 
for anything. It's deeply appropriate then that Christ should ride on a donkey that had never been used for anything else. Because the entire Old Testament, the sacrificial system itself, was intended to point towards the need for salvation. And the prophet Zechariah says here that here is coming a king seeking to save those that are lost. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Isaiah 62 as well highlights the nature of Jesus' coming into the world. Saying, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold your salvation comes. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Jesus is the king of all heaven and earth, but he came first not in power or might, but he came as a suffering servant. And when he came, he brought salvation to sinners like you and me. And lastly, what does Palm Sunday mean to the crowds? Well, they're here celebrating and they're crying out, Hosanna! They're celebrating largely because... They misunderstand. And before we throw this crowd under the bus, we need to ask our own hearts and ourselves this question. Do we understand what the Messiah has come to do? Even the disciples, John records, didn't get it when it was going on. It would, their understanding would come later. They're crying out, Hosanna. They're waving palm branches. Uh, the Hosannas are from Psalm 113 through 118 and were typically sung during times of great celebration. You see, palm branches were not just uh, hand fans to keep them cool uh, in springtime uh, in Palestine. No, the palm itself was a national symbol. It was, in a sense, the Jewish flag of independence. Because their expectation, as I said before, was that the Messiah would come to bring freedom from political oppression. Their expectation was that the Messiah would bring an earthly kingdom. But Christ comes to bring a heavenly kingdom. They were concerned and they craved political liberty. But Christ comes and brings spiritual liberation. They are focusing on external possibilities. But Jesus came to do business with the internal realities of the heart. A crown of thorns was not what they had in mind. And so these misplaced dreams were short-lived. Because by Friday, and we don't know for sure, but we may guess that many of those in this same crowd crying, Hosanna, will be in the crowd crying out, crucify him. They misunderstood the Messiah because they misunderstood their true need. And many of us can be guilty of the same, can't we? Many are fans of Jesus. Oh, he's a good guy. He's a good teacher. Life should go well if you follow him, if you join a church, if you do the right things. But ultimately, in our heart of hearts, we might think that he exists to make us happy. That he comes to fulfill our great longings and our great desires. But the moment that following him means transformation or commitment, 
in our lives. We are quick to change our cries from Hosanna to crucify. Some of us may honor Jesus with our mouths, but our hearts are far from him. We're all prepared in our old nature to crucify whatever stands in our way of who we think we are or what we think we're due or entitled to in this life. There are many on Palm Sunday that are looking for a Messiah of their own making that will bring deliverance and peace from such small ambitions and small dreams of earthly success and temporary and fleeting happiness. We want the Messiah to be accountable to us, don't we? We want God to do what we want. My will be done, not thy will be done. But look at what happens in verse 10. Matthew records the whole city was stirred up. They were saying, who is this? Which is an interesting question because they knew who Jesus was. They had seen him before. What they're really saying was, do we really know who this is? Are we really sure? Maybe we've missed it after all. The waving of these palm branches, these cries of Hosanna, are ultimately what will give the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, nervous and begin plotting to kill him. They've already actually begun plotting to kill him since the resurrection of Lazarus. Cities will be stirred by the proclamation of Jesus. Cultures may be crumbling around us, but the word of God rings true, doesn't it? And the reality is that in 2016, our cities do not merely need more programs or economic development, clinics or schools, as important as as essential as those are. But what our cities need, what the world needs, is the Lord Jesus Christ. What the world needs is men and women who are made new in Him, who are followers of Him, who go where He sends, who does what He says, who bow the knee to the King of all glory, people who have committed themselves to be overflowing with Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. It's not that we're perfect. Or even that God needs us. But isn't it amazing that God chooses to turn the world upside down with just a few disciples who are committed to His rule and His reign. Who know His love and the goodness of His person. Who have tasted and seen of His majesty and of His grace. Can we say before anything else in our lives that I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? We can't do this on our own strength. Again, we can't see Jesus as He is unless God first opens our eyes and opens our hearts. We're all sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody does what is good. We don't have any cause for pride or arrogance or to stand on our own merit. But he comes on a donkey to bring deliverance, to bring freedom, freedom from the bondage of sin, 
That we can now have a right relationship with our Creator. That we can now call God Father. It's one of the central revelations of the entire New Testament that Jesus says, when you pray, call God Abba, Father. And we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this Palm Sunday, we need and long for the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The ultimate question of Palm Sunday is a question for every Sunday and every day. It's the eternal one. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What are we going to do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Do you know him and do you love him as Lord? Or is he a Messiah of your own making? Is he a means to your own end? Or do you see the end as the goodness of God himself? That we're freed not to live the American dream, but we're freed to live in eternity with no more pain, no more death, no more weeping, no more crying, but true communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever as one people. I pray that that's true of all of us this day and always. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for Palm Sunday, for the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Lord, for Holy Week, and what it teaches us about ourselves and who you are, what you came in this world to do. We praise you that you lived the life that we could not live because of our sin, and you died in our place. And as we move throughout each day this week, I pray that in a special and a fresh way, you might bind our hearts towards Calvary. That you might focus our minds towards the reality of the cross. Thank you for the cross. That no matter who we are, that no matter what we've done, there is forgiveness. And there is love. And I pray as we see justification at the cross, that by the power of your whole spirit, Holy Spirit, you would continue to sanctify us by the power of your word and that daily we would be able to die to self and die to sin and more and more to live unto righteousness, that we might seek to please you, that we might live for an audience of one. We pray all of this in your beautiful and majestic and wonderful name. Amen.